Tuesday was Super Tuesday, the day of presidential primaries in many states. Well, today is Super Thursday for all Westminster Town Hall Forum participants in that today's speaker is Kathleen Hall Jamison, author of the well-known and highly regarded volume, Packaging the Presidency, a History and Criticism of Presidential Campaign Advertising. How fortunate we are to have her with us while the results of Tuesday's primaries are still being sifted and as we gear up for the long march separating today from the first Tuesday in November. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, minister here and moderator of these forums. Dr. Jameson's presence is highly consistent with the overarching rubric, Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective, that has governed these forums the past 12 years that they've been offered free and open to the public. And we're glad for the public that is here today. Dr. Jameson is Professor of Communication and Dean of the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. Other books that she has written include Debating Crime Control, The Interplay of Influence, Media and Their Publics in News, Advertising and Politics, Eloquence in an Electronic Age, Presidential Debates, The Challenge of Creating an Informed Electorate, and Deeds Done in Words, Presidential Rhetoric and the Genre of Governance. Dr. Jameson has lectured widely, very widely, and written innumerable articles. She has a number of degrees and citations. Among more than a dozen professional associations and interests, beginning in 1990, she has been a member of the board for the Center of Public Integrity. That has a very good ring to it. I hadn't realized until a few minutes ago that our guest is a native of Minnesota, having grown up in Waconia, and indeed her mother and father are here today, which is delightful. Just to set the stage for her presentation, allow me to read from her introduction to the latest edition of her Packaging the Presidency. Quote, in the era of mass visual communication, major party candidates until 1988 assumed that outright lying in an ad would create an outcry from the press, a devastating counter-assault from the other side, and a backlash from an incensed electorate. That assumption no longer governs. I concluded the last edition of this book with the assurance that the public had little to fear from distortions in TV and other ads. I was wrong. Dr. Jameson's subject for today, media, information, or manipulation. Welcome to Minnesota and home, home to Minnesota and to Westminster Church. <laughs> Being born and raised in Minnesota is a curse. 
It is a curse because if you leave Minnesota, you bring the expectations that Minnesotans have about public discourse to the discourse of other states and indeed to national elections. Okay, let me try a little bit more. And if you bring the assumptions that Minnesotans bring to discourse, to the discourse in most other states and the discourse across the United States, you will be sorely disappointed. This is a state that does not, I think, appreciate the extent to which it is highly unusual. Minnesotans are better read than the public at large, are more disposed to participate in politics than the public at large, and when they are upset about the system not working, are disproportionately likely to try to fix it. And so, the citizen's jury concept, for example, did not come from New York or Pennsylvania or even Illinois. It came from Minnesota. And that's no surprise. The Minnesota tradition of democratic participation is extremely strong. And the question I would like to ask today is how can we take that tradition and carry it elsewhere, and how can we ensure that it is preserved here? I would like to try to address that question by posing two questions. The first is what should we discuss in politics? And the second is, how should we discuss it? This actually reframes a question asked by Howard Baker during the Watergate hearings, when he said, what did Richard Nixon know, and when did he know it? I would like to ask, what should we know, and how should we know it? And I would like to answer the question, what should we discuss, by saying that part of the problem with political discourse is that we're talking about the wrong things. When is the last time in this presidential campaign that you heard someone speak about the homeless? When is the last time you heard someone talk about the hungry? When is the last time that you heard someone address basic issues of social justice? They're simply not in the dialogue. There are other things that are important in the dialogue, but I think it is on an ongoing basis important to ask, what aren't we asking that we ought to ask, and why aren't we asking about it? How we address political discourse explains why we don't treat some of these subjects. If a candidate speaks about the problem of homelessness in the United States and is shown visually with a person who is homeless, that visual juxtaposition of images hurts the candidate. We tend to discuss politics in the United States in simplistic identifications and simplistic appositions. And you don't want to be identified with something that looks like a problem, particularly if it looks as if the answer might involve money. As a result, on network news, as candidates stage their created, crafted events, their pseudo-events, they don't want to appear in the ghettos with the homeless, with the hungry. They're afraid that if they do, they'll be identified with that problem and they'll be rejected. And as a result, what you see them with most often are flags. 
made in Korea. <laughs> We've done a study to determine how people perceive candidates in different environments. When you put flags in back of any candidate, voters' response to that candidate improves. When you put candidates next to problems, voters become wary of that candidate. We've developed a vocabulary in politics in which the simplistic identifications and the simplistic appositions have created a norm for the discourse which says that some matters of social importance are not likely to be discussed. And that, I think, is very problematic. We've also said that if you say some things, you can't be elected. This is the state that produced the candidate who said we need to raise taxes. He said in his acceptance speech at the Democratic Convention in 1984 that he would tell you something that his opponent would do but not tell you he was going to do, that he was going to raise taxes. And he said he was going to use the taxes in a trust fund, set them, apart in a, set them aside in a trust fund, in order basically to reduce the deficit. What was made of that claim in advertising was the assertion that Walter Mondale will raise your taxes for his special interests. Ronald Reagan will not raise your taxes. Now, at some point, that advertised claim was accurate. Ronald Reagan didn't. Walter Mondale was right. He just wasn't right at the point at which he thought he was. He was right, but the rightness occurred in the Bush administration. When Bush, who was elected, saying, read my lips, no new taxes, concluded that he had to raise taxes. Why, I think we should ask ourselves, could George Bush not say to us in 1988, I cannot pay for the social programs that we all consider necessary and cope with the deficit without raising taxes. That is going to be a fact. Why instead did he feel it necessary to say, the Congress will push me and I will say no. The Congress will push me again and I will say no. The Congress will push me again and I will say, read my lips. No new taxes. More interesting than the need for George Bush to say that, George Bush, who in 1980 called Reagan's economics voodoo economics and was right, why did George Bush feel the need to say that? Because that was the way to get elected. What's wrong with a democracy in which a candidate cannot tell us the truth and have us discuss how we're going to deal with it. The interesting thing about 1988's Read My Lips, No New Taxes was that most Americans who voted for George Bush didn't believe he wasn't going to raise taxes. Now look at the anomaly of that situation. George Bush believes we won't vote for him unless he tells us what we want to hear no new taxes, but we're smart enough to know as we vote for him that he didn't really mean it after all. What are we discussing and how are we discussing it? In 1988, the Republican campaign focused on 
William Horton and the Massachusetts furlough system on who was responsible for the sludge-clotted Boston Harbor and on a lot of flag factories. Why didn't we any time in 1988 hear from George Bush or from Michael Dukakis anything about savings and loan bailout, which was going to cost the country more than anything else that anyone discussed any time in 1988? Weren't we entitled to know that they knew it was a problem, that it was going to be very costly, and then to discuss how did we get into it so that we could avoid getting into it again, and how were we going to get out of it? Not a whisper. Now, the standard academic indictment is of the press. Why didn't the press raise the savings and loan issue? Well, in fact, the press did raise the savings and loan issue. It raised it in Business Week. It raised it in the News Weeklies. It raised it in the Wall Street Journal. It raised it in the Washington Post and the New York Times and on McNeil Lehrer. The question isn't why didn't the press raise it, but why didn't the press raise it when we had the candidates on camera so that we could hold the candidates accountable? As part of the research for a book that I have coming out in August, which is called Dirty Politics, Distortion, Distraction, and Democracy, I obtained the press notes from the interviews that the press did on the plane with George Bush and found one in which the press had the opportunity to ask about savings and loan. A committee of the Congress was investigating the problem and had concluded that it would cost at least 50 billion dollars within the next four years. This is in 1988. The committee, by the way, was way low in its estimate. The cost now is over $150 billion. Money, incidentally, which one might have used to deal with those social justice issues that went unmentioned in the campaign, money which might not needed to have been spent if we'd ever debated deregulation and regulation in the campaigns before we engaged in those practices. And so the press, picking up on the investigations of the Schumer Committee, asked George Bush on the plane and in this order these questions. The first question, how are you feeling about how well you're doing in the polls? George Bush answers that he's feeling pretty good. Are you feeling better than you did after Iowa? Now this begins to sound like a dialogue between a doctor and a patient. <laughs> I expect the next question to be, do you have any pain? <laughs> do you have trouble walking stairs? Are you eating normally? Someone says, what do you think about the SNL crisis? Not a particularly pointed question. And Bush says, we're dealing with it. We're dealing with it. The reporter then says, well, there's an estimate that it's going to cost a lot of money. And Bush says, whose estimate? The reporter says, well, Bob Dole says it might be as much as $50 billion. Bush says, that's his estimate. My message is, everything's going to be all right. The next question is, how do you think your strategy is going to change in the last weeks of the election?
Now, what does that tell us about how we are learning about the things that are important? When the press has access to the candidate, it has the opportunity to focus the candidate on the issue and hold the candidate accountable. But the press has conventionalized a mode of coverage that makes that all but impossible. The press focuses on strategy and game plan and horse race. The dominant structure through which the press asks us to approach politics is not what are the problems or challenges and what are the solutions and why should we accept one over the other? What are the costs and what are the advantages to us? But instead of that structure, which I call a problem-solution structure, the press instead says, who's going to win? By how much? As indicated by the polls, using what strategy to appear presidential? I don't care who appears presidential. I'd like to know who is presidential. Underlying this set of questions is a cynical presupposition that what they say doesn't actually matter. And if you assume that, what they say doesn't actually matter. When we talk to voters across the United States about what they have learned from news about politics, over 60% of what they tell us they have learned is about strategy. The what of politics is now creating an informed electorate of campaign consultants. It is as if you set out at the beginning of the election cycle and said, all of you people out there who want to know what to vote on, vote on who is going to win and what person has the best strategies to ultimately accomplish that. Don't vote on the compelling problems and who offers the most compelling solutions. And if over 60% of what we learn is about strategy, what are we to do when we walk into the voting booth? How are we to know that SNL is important? How are we to know what the candidates are going to do about homelessness and hunger? Well, the answer is we haven't told them what we want done. And so they can pretty much either ignore the problem or do whatever they please. I come to you recommending that we change the structure of discourse. That we say to reporters, we expect you to tell us what are the issues facing the country, and you can know that first by polls in which we tell the country what we consider important. And secondly, what matters are pending before Congress? because that also tells you what's important. And that would have put the savings and loan question into the national agenda in 1988. And then finally, what does the community of experts that is influential at the grassroots level say is important? That will ensure that the social justice issues and the environment stay inside that discussion. We say to reporters, we want to know what those issues are, and we want to know how the candidates perceive them how they differ about them, if at all. Often the candidates don't differ, and we don't know that. We do know who has the more effective advertising. If they differ at all, and then ultimately what that means for the country. Now when you say that to reporters, both broadcast and print reporters, you say the what are the challenges and the problems, 
the how is reporting that tells us what the options are and what it means for us. What they say is, if we reported that, nobody would buy our newspapers, nobody would watch our network news. Well, if that's true, then the American electorate is getting exactly what it wants, which is to become con campaign consultants. At the end of the 1988 campaign, we asked 12-year-old children to tell us what they thought was important, that they had seen or read or heard about in news about the campaign. They told us that George Bush had better advertising than Michael Dukakis did. Twelve-year-old children can tell us that George Bush had better advertising? How do they know that? You don't have to spend a lot of time with news to learn in 1988 that George Bush is strategically more on target and more likely to win as a result than is Michael Dukakis. It's a pervasive theme of network news. But when you say to those children and to their parents, what would George Bush do that is important and different from Michael Dukakis? They also tell you something interesting. They say, read my lips. No new taxes. We have let the press reduce coverage to strategy, and we have let the candidates reduce discourse to slogans. And when the candidates offer us substance, it doesn't get through the news filter, and so we punish it instead of rewarding it. I come here to confess to you that I am a cynical person. I think it's appropriate in this environment to confess that. <laughs> and let me tell you how I knew that. I had been away from Minnesota too long. I was watching the second debate of 1988, and in it, George Bush said, and I can't re replicate George Bush's syntax because I was taught in Minnesota schools to use subjects, verbs, and objects, but I am going to try. <laughs> he said, Went to Illinois, Loretta Lynn, had a little music, did a little farm policy, got no coverage. All the press looks at are attacks and polls. I was sitting in my living room saying to myself, sure, George. Went to Illinois, staged a little pseudo event, said nothing of any importance, went back on the road. I was wrong. George Bush, that day in Illinois, laid out his farm policy. There was a farm policy. It had substance. It got no network news coverage. Michael Dukakis went to Chicago and delivered a major speech on foreign affairs. That afternoon, he went to Michigan, got into a tank, and rode around. The speech didn't get into network news. The tank did. And that sound in the background is the tank continuing to circle <laughs> in Michigan. Now, Michael Dukakis looked pretty silly in that tank. I grant that. But I don't care if someone looks silly as president or not. I would like to know what is the person going to do with international affairs. 
the Bush tank ad, which takes that moment and situates it in memory for eternity, basically does a fundamental injustice to Michael Dukakis, the same way network news did a fundamental injustice to George Bush when it didn't cover his foreign policy statement. What happened in network news and what happens in the tank ad is that the discourse is reduced to simplistic dualities that don't represent the actual position of the candidate. I come here to tell you something startling about Michael Dukakis and George Bush. They both favored a military buildup. Michael Dukakis was not weak on defense. Michael Dukakis was different on defense. Michael Dukakis favored a conventional buildup. George Bush favored a nuclear buildup. In dollar terms, their military recommendations did not differ substantially. But you didn't know that on network evening news unless you watched McNeil Lehrer. And so few of us watch McNeil Lehrer that it rarely gets above the Nielsen asterisk, which means there aren't enough for us to know that there is an audience there. And let me tell you why it's important that we never debated the difference between Bush and Dukakis and let the campaign reduce it to the claim that he was weak on defense. It was important because what Michael Dukakis was trying to tell us when looking like Snoopy or Rocky from Rocky and Bullwinkle, he circled in the tank. He was trying to tell us in the grammar of news, which says, no compelling picture, no news, that he favored more M1 tanks. He favored more conventional weaponry in support of tanks and more anti-tank weaponry. He also supported the Apache helicopter. He believed that we didn't have enough resources on the ground to support a land-based initiative. And he argued in that speech in Chicago and the next day in a follow-up speech in DC that in the next four years, what we needed was not more nuclear. We needed more conventional support, particularly in the tank and anti-tank area. Why is this important? First, because we didn't know that was a difference. It didn't come through in the debates. It didn't come through in news. And it came through only for the few people who watched McNeil Lear. Basically, news shut the story out, reducing it to the silliness of the tank ride. But it's important for a second reason. The how of the coverage ignored the substantial what of the difference. In Desert Storm, George Bush used no nuclear weapons. Desert Storm has two assault vehicles that are the workhorse vehicles, the M1 tank and the Apache helicopter, which the year before the 88 campaign, Reagan Bush had tried to cut substantially and had been thwarted by the Democrats in Congress. Dukakis's point in the second speech was that we had inadequate communication between the existing weapons. We needed better weapons, more tanks, more anti-tank weapons, but we also needed better communication. In Desert Storm, the friendly fire deaths occur in large part because we have inadequate communication between the Apache helicopters and the tanks, including the M1 and our other tanks on the ground. I would argue to you that we were entitled in 1988 to a debate about whether to go to a conventional or a nuclear buildup, or some combination. And 
I would argue as well that had we done what Michael Dukakis wanted to do, we would have been better prepared to fight George Bush's war. Now, the ultimate irony is I don't think Dukakis would have gone into that war, and so we wouldn't have had occasion to know if we'd elected Dukakis. In summary, in some important ways, the what of governance is being neglected because how we cover it impoverishes the dialogue, suppressing some things that are important and focusing on other things that are not consequential. And when things are consequential, focusing on them in a simplistic way that does not yield useful information. Now, what has this to do with the primaries that we are going through right now? In Georgia, Patrick Buchanan put an ad on the air showing gay men dancing in a film called Tongues Untied. In the ad, he claimed that George Bush favored pornography. I would like to suggest to you that no reasonable person in a high elected office favors pornography and that there is no indication whatsoever that George Bush is an exception. That is a ridiculous claim. The ad then says that Bush funded this film through the National Endowment for the Arts, and it claims that as a result, George Bush favors, and I quote, glorifying homosexuality, exploiting children, and perverting the image of Jesus Christ. The facts. The National Endowment for the Arts supplied a $5,000 grant through a state arts council to support this film under the Reagan administration, not the Bush administration. This film is not typical of National Endowment for the Arts funding. The typical National Endowment funding funds the Chicago Symphony and Pavarotti on PBS. George Bush did not approve of that film. George Bush was not responsible for the funding because the economy is doing well in Georgia and Pat Buchanan couldn't, as a result, talk about the economy through a read-my-lips rubric and get a compelling indictment of George Bush. What does it look like? It looks like 1988 revisited. Talk about things irrelevant to governance, try to distract people to focus on them so that we don't address jobs, economic competitiveness, health care, homelessness, hunger, the environment. That's the bad news. The good news is the press, which in 1988 would have rewarded the Buchanan ad for its strategic savviness, instead punished the ad by pointing out to voters exactly what I just pointed out to you. And in research that we were just accumulating as I got on the plane to come to speak with you, we found that voters created a backlash against Pat Buchanan in Georgia as a result of that ad. We can change the what of political discussion if we penalize those who don't engage in it productively. The voters penalized Buchanan and the ad did not reappear. I come to invite you as informed voters to encourage the press to do its job. Focus on matters relevant to governance. Treat factual accuracy, contextuality, and fairness as serious topics in campaign discourse and as a result, hold candidates accountable 
for telling us about the tough choices we face and helping us make them. Thank you. Dr. Jameson, in the introduction to your packaging the presidency, there is a line, how then can the electorate be protected? And your answer is, the best available defense seems to be the vigilance of the opposing candidate and party. Well, I would submit that our best hope as of this moment is the kind of vigilance that you bring to the, to the discourse, and we thank you. While those of you who must uh, leave are doing so, let me remind the radio audience that uh, you are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. Our speaker today, Dean Kathleen Hall Jamison, Professor of Communication and Dean of the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, author of Packaging the Presidency, A History and Criticism of Presidential Campaign Advertising. Uh, let me remind the radio audience furthermore that you too may uh, enter into this question period by calling the church and submitting your question. The number is 332-3421, 332-3421. Uh, would those who are going to sort the questions please take their places and will the uh, uh, ushers please uh, busy themselves uh, picking up the questions. Uh, which should be handed uh, to the aisle. Well, Dr. Jameson, would you return to the podium, please? And uh, we'll begin to fire away. I'll take the privilege of beginning. Uh, I read uh, uh, an editorial on the editorial page in the morning paper, Super Tuesday Voter Blues by George Will. His last comment, much will change by November but today, a reasonable wager would be that Election Day will see another reduction in voter turnout. Tens of millions may choose not to choose. But would you care to reflect on that? In New Hampshire, we saw signs that an electorate that has a focus on problems is willing to make real efforts to find information about solutions. And as a result, the candidates in New Hampshire did three things. First, they began appearing in their own ads. Now, ads that have candidates in them are less likely to be sleazy because you don't want, as a candidate, to be held accountable for putting out garbage. Secondly, the candidates' ads became longer. It's almost impossible in 30 seconds to engage in anything that looks like reasoned argument. Ads moved to 60-second and 30-minute lengths. And third, the candidates began putting out extended print statements indicating what they would do. The electorate responded to that by information seeking at unprecedented levels. The New Hampshire primary was a model of what democracy is supposed to look like. We also had substantive debates. The McNeil-Lira debate and the Peter Jennings debate are the finest debates I've seen in the history of the presidency. The press is trying to add its contribution to this productive dialogue. Then we went south, and the whole process fell apart. 
but it didn't fall apart because voters stopped caring. It fell apart because we've structured the primaries stupidly. We've structured the primaries so that you have a highly homogeneous audience with very clear concerns first. Hence, a high level of information seeking this time and a high level of good candidate discourse. And then we spread the primaries out all over the country so that the primary states have nothing in common with each other. And as a result, the candidates' resources are starting to decline. There are still people who are falling behind, but in the race. And the incentive to get through the message clutter with small resources is to attack. So we went from the best of times to the worst of times. This week is critical because Illinois and Michigan have the same kinds of problems. If this week we go back to the kinds of discourse we saw in New Hampshire, I disagree with George Will. If we stay with the kind of discourse we saw in the Southern primaries, then he may well be correct. Thank you. Discuss the impact the media has had on Governor Clinton's campaign. I think it is appalling that the media took unsubstantiated charges printed in a tabloid supermarket outlet, which they themselves in the legitimate press had not been able to verify, and made them sufficiently important that Bill Clinton had to respond to them. Jennifer Flowers claimed she was a nurse and has no nursing credits, claimed she had been a front singer for Hee Haw and hadn't, claimed she had trysts with Bill Clinton in a hotel that wasn't even built when the trysts supposedly took place, and had no credible evidence on the tapes that she was doing anything other than calling Clinton because she thought she'd been smeared by these charges in the past. I think the press owes the public an apology. From the audience, when you spoke at the Mondale Forum, you sounded more optimistic. Has this campaign affected you negatively? <laughs> I was really optimistic after New Hampshire, but we've been running focus groups around the country, small groups of voters watching them uh, absorb political information. They, I'm disappointed that the number of people watching the candidate debates is not higher. The networks have donated time, which means it costs them money, which means they have no good reason to do it, in order to sponsor debates that have been highly substantive and very few people are watching. And I would ask, in an environment in which occasionally you're asked to examine your conscience, I would ask, did you watch the debates? When you watched them, if you enjoyed them, did you write a note to NBC, ABC, McNeil Lear and CNN saying thank you for contributing to democracy? Those people who care have got to now tell the networks that these minuscule audiences, which means they really lost a substantial amount of money without gaining prestige, were still worthwhile, that you're the kind of people they wanted to reach. The irony is the networks in prime time want to reach young, affluent suburbanites, and older, educated adults are the more likely participants, observers, and debates. Look at the median age of the people who are sitting around you. The danger to democracy is that this audience is older rather than younger. The question is, is there going to be democracy when your children and grandchildren are the ones who are asked to participate? Will there be any audience for presidential debates? 
yes, I am less optimistic than I was after the Mondale Policy Forum. Mm -hmm. uh, this fits in, I think. Uh, are there any programs, announcers, columnists who are more apt to provide us with the information we need to make intelligent choices? You mentioned McNeil Lair, but what else would you offer us? In 1988, we looked at all forms of news, trying to, to answer that question. And what we found was that in 1988, there was more political substance available for those of us who want it than there ever had been in the history of campaigns. But what it meant was that you needed to watch McNeil Lear, get them above the Nielsen asterisk, that you needed to watch Nightline, that you needed to watch the Sunday interview shows, that you needed to watch the debates, and that you needed to read the most educated voters who consistently are able to identify candidate positions are the readers. It also meant in 1988 that you watched the Frontline documentaries. Frontline produced under the supervision of Gary Wills, who is an extraordinarily fine historian, two biographies, one of each candidate, which was the, gave you the kind of information you usually don't get about the candidates until after they've been president for four years but it gave, the, gave it to you the week before the election. So if you watched the Sunday shows, the debates, McNeil Lear, Frontline, and you read major newspapers and major news magazines, 88 was an incredibly rich information environment. If you relied on network evening news, you didn't learn very much. Who is responsible for lack of information in the media? the publishers and owners or the reporters? Hmm. There, there's a natural tendency to hold some single person responsible because if you do, then you know first where to channel the blame and secondly how to address the solution. I think the publishers are responsible, the reporters are responsible, the candidates are responsible, the educators are responsible, and the parents who don't read at home are responsible. The single greatest predictor of whether your children will read newspapers is whether they see their parents read newspapers. A survey that was done a year ago found that students under 30, children under 30, are now less likely to read a newspaper than ever in human history. What does that mean? They're more likely to get most of their political information from political advertising, which is the most impoverished form of political discourse. And so I would hold the parents responsible. I would also hold the educators responsible my area. The, we have now educated more people than ever in human history with college degrees. We have the most educated electorate in human history. And it's that electorate that was less likely to watch the 88 presidential debates in raw numbers than the 60 debates. It is an astonishing thing to say. We have more people now than we had in 1960 by quite a bit. But in raw numbers, less watched the first Bush-Dukakis debate than watched the first Kennedy-Nixon debate. You've got to have some blame with the schools. If the schools haven't taught people the satisfactions of participating in democracy, the satisfactions of consuming political information and translating it into their lives, then who else is going to teach that? And then I think you hold the reporters responsible and the publishers responsible, but less so, because when they say the public doesn't want substance and they turn to McNeil Lear's asterisk in the Nielsen ratings, what are you to say? Frontline, practically no audience. What are you to say? The debates, declining audience. What are you to say? Where's the audience? 
advertising. So what do they produce? Straightforward supply-side economics. You reward the ads with viewership, you get more ads. You punish the ads by putting corrections in and penalizing candidates, at least you'll get more accurate ads. Perhaps this question fits in. The media is an industry. As an industry, it is plagued by the same weaknesses of all U.S. industry and additionally is expected to do public service. Are you really expecting improved discourse without radical social change? If yes, what is the realistic road from here to the promised land where campaign, campaigns discuss issues? If you assume that the problem with discourse on television is that television is commercially based, then the first answer is watch public broadcasting. You have a drive right now to contribute to your local public broadcasting station. <laughs> contribute to your local public broadcasting station and then watch it since it doesn't do a lot of good to support it and then not watch it. The commercial broadcasters this year have offered the public the substance of debates, which costs them money. When we don't watch, we have no longer any right to say to them, you don't give us what we say we want. Because they've given it to us and we've said, oh, we made a mistake. We want Laverne and Shirley. Comment on press reporting of Tsongas' plane getting stuck in mud in Chicago following Super Tuesday. We found that the polls drive strategy coverage. When you're ahead in the polls, if your plane gets stuck in the mud, it isn't shown in network news. When you're behind in the polls, it's shown in network news as if to symbolize your faltering campaign. Now, I thought perhaps that faltering campaigns were stuck in the mud more often, so maybe you had representative discourse. So I went back in 1988 and asked the reporters day by day to make notes of what had happened in the Bush campaign and the Dukakis campaign. How many flat tires, how many microphones that didn't work, you know, how many cars that didn't show up on time, how many flags that fell over. It turned out there was no substantial difference. When Dukakis was ahead in the polls, the symbols that were chosen all showed positive things. When he was behind in the polls, the same symbols were reinterpreted. Dukakis is at a bowling alley and he rolls a number of balls. He hit one strike, one gutter ball. He's behind in the polls. Which one gets covered? The gutter ball. <laughs> the press engages in personification that would make those who taught me English just gleeful. After the first Reagan-Mondale debate, which Reagan did not do terribly well in, the press needed a symbol to show that the Reagan campaign wasn't doing very well. Well, Ronald Reagan looked the same way he always did, you know, kind of orangish hair and affable disposition. He looked friendly. He didn't look physically damaged by the debate. So they took a shot of his car pulling away and they said, the Reagan car pulls more slowly into the afternoon. Now, at some level, this is funny, but it creates a downward spiral for the candidate who's behind in the polls, and it's symptomatic of other changes as well. The candidate who's ahead in the poll gets a direct relationship to his verbs. The candidate who's behind gets a more strained relationship. What does that mean? The candidate who's ahead speaks, acts, decides. The candidate who's behind tries to speak, tries to act, tries to decide. The adverbs change. The person who's behind in the polls does everything doggedly or desperately. The candidate ahead in the polls does it enthusiastically, 
eagerly, decisively. The poles are a nemesis. Companion questions, one from this audience and one from the radio audience. Please comment on how political campaigns are financed. Why can't we forbid all paid political campaigning? In the general election, the major party candidates are federally financed. And as a result, they accept a cap on what they are able to spend. There are also some caps in place by virtue of accepting federal financing in the primaries. I would like to see money taken out of politics entirely so that candidates have free access to the American people in blocks of time on television. Now, the first problem is, in a time when the network revenues are substantially off, who's going to pay for it? But I live in an ideal world. I assume that, like the birds and the lilies in the field, something is going to provide for democracy under this scenario. But secondly, it would be costly if you underwrote the campaigns through the Treasury. And this is not a good time to be saying we want to federally finance all campaigns. I would personally rather finance federal campaigns than you know, B-1 bombers um, or SNL bailouts. But I don't think it's realistic to think we're going to have that as an option. The sad thing is the checkoff on your income tax forms that gives you the option to contribute part of your tax money campaign finance is now way off, uh, which means when the public is asked if it wants to pay to underwrite campaigns, it is basically saying no. Uh, I think the, the viewer, the, the listener, is raising a very important question and one to which circumstances now don't lend a ready answer. Question from the audience. Will television of Senate, television of Senate and House activities help? Will people listen? The problem with Senate and House telecasting is that the only way you get access is if you can afford cable. And as a result, at the moment, 46% of the country doesn't have access. I think having the House and Senate televised <coughs> is an important contribution to democracy. You learn an immense amount about how the process works and how it should work by simply watching these folks debate the issues. And among other things, what you learn is that People who are elected in impoverished campaigns on meaningless sloganeering actually are pretty smart. They are intelligent. They are capable of intelligent reasoned discourse. The public did stop and watch the Gulf War debate, which I thought was a model of reasoned discourse. It also presupposed that people on both sides had goodwill and integrity, which is a useful thing to suppose when you're trying to make an important joint decision. And that was aired on PBS so that you didn't disenfranchise those who couldn't afford to or didn't have access to cable. But I think televising both the Senate and the House is an important contribution to the discourse of democracy. There's a certain amount of additional posturing that you get from everyone, and they all wear red ties as a result, which means the other advantage is the red tie industry will flourish, and the economy needs all the stimulus it can get. What is your response to the uh, suggestion, the philosophy, shall we say, that we get the leadership we deserve? The public at the end of 1988 said it wasn't satisfied with either candidate or with either campaign. I think the clearest instance of an electorate being given candidates it didn't deserve was the Louisiana race. If you had to choose between Edwin Edwards 
and David Duke. What is the appropriate rational response? The, the slogans that said, vote for the lizard, not the wizard, actually seem to me to, to have commented in some way on the quality of the available choice. But if good people of integrity choose not to run for office, and those who do run and tell the truth can't win, then what's the incentive for participation by those who actually should be seeking public office? I think if we solve the question of, of how do we address the important concerns and what are the important concerns, we will automatically increase the talent of the pool willing to take, the, take on the burden of running for public office. I would ask people in a church, would you really like everything you've ever done to be open to public scrutiny because someone you know is willing to tell the star about it, whether it's true or false? Does any of us have a life without sin? with a media willing to cast the first stone. Second thing that I would say as a result of that is we also have to expect of our candidates that human flaws are in fact going to be a characteristic of those running for public office and makes, take some account for basic human frailties. There is some value in forgiveness. question from the audience. Regarding DFL presidential candidates, Clinton, Zongas, and Brown, who in your opinion appears presidential versus is presidential? <laughs> well, first, thinking about them as DFL means you're thinking about them from a Minnesota perspective in which you still keep farm and labor together. Part of the problem with the Democratic coalition is those two things aren't thought of as being together in most places. And you also see candidates who aren't completely sure that they need an identification with farm and labor when they call themselves Democrats. The more interesting question I would have is, are any of those three actually Democrats? But I think the problem with the question inheres in the system. It is very difficult when you are in the field of four or five candidates, which until very recently these gentlemen have been, to look presidential. It's very difficult to be attacked on a regular basis and to look presidential. I went back as I was writing Packaging the Presidency and looked what we said about the great presidents in the primaries. Eisenhower doesn't look presidential enough. He's bald. Well, Harry Truman doesn't look presidential enough. He's short. He sold hats. Franklin Roosevelt did look presidential enough, but if we'd seen him in a wheelchair, would we have said so? John Kennedy didn't look presidential until after the West Virginia primary. Up to that point, the press thought he was a young upstart kid running on his father's money. And so I wonder if we can really tell who is presidential while you're still in this kind of a, a catfighting environment. I think Clinton and Songus are offering serious, reasoned positions of merit that deserve discussion and consideration. And if either were in the White House, they would look presidential as soon as they got the seal in front of them. After all, Lyndon Johnson did. And Lyndon Johnson... <laughs> and Lyndon Johnson preserved that image even as he showed us his gallbladder scar <laughs> and lifted his beagles by the ears. And so I, I'm not sure that the test is as high as we would, we would make it in the primary season. Dr. Jameson, you said earlier in your speech that, that uh, 
we work with the cynical assumption that what our candidates say doesn't matter, where we're working on the informed decision based on our experience here this noon that what you say matters greatly, and we thank you. Thank you.